welcome back to the Endercut podcast. I'm your host, Ellie Mae Taylor, and we're back to preview the final Formula One race of the season, the Dusty Dark Abu Dhabi Grand Prix. Joining me as ever are the cheese to my pickle and the butter to my bread, which is interesting you chose those because I'm lactose intolerant, Desi Billington and Timo Albers Daly. How are you both? I'm doing all right. For that. Well, it was better than Laurel and Hardy to, was it um, Victoria? Victoria Wood. Yeah, but they never performed together. They weren't like a pairing or like a, a combination of trio. No, but I was, I was what it more was, going was, Hardy and Victoria Wood was just better. Yeah, it didn't. It, it didn't I'm good like anyway. Me. How are you? I'm good, thank you. But uh, we do have a guest joining us this week, so we will try and be on our best behaviour. She no is a editor-in-chief at Formula Nerds, Abby Bathurst. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. I'm excited to be here with you guys. And just watch us squabble but anyway <laughs> it's always when we have guests on that we squabble usually we're on our absolute best behavior and there's no one here to see it and very few people to listen to it but as soon as there's a guest on it it descends into bickering yeah but we'll move on now to what the hell has happened where we review what news is coming out of in the world of motorsport in the past week or so and we'll open it up with the rumor that Mattia Bonotto apparently is a key target for Audi and F1. Audi are reportedly behind him when it comes to the engine development for 2026 and they're in need of some top personnel in their engine department. Of course a lot of us know Bonotto as the former team principal at Ferrari but before this he had been firmly situated within Ferrari's engine department since 1995 and was part of Ferrari's success in the early 2000s before becoming the head of the engine department in 2013 and then the chief technical officer in 2016. Ferrari apparently placed Bonotto on gardening leave following his resignation last year, ruling him out of joining any Formula One teams this season. But with the expertise that he has, would putting him back into the role that he's comfortable to him within the engine side of things be beneficial to a Formula One team coming in? Or do you think his time as team, as team principal has slightly tarnished his reputation? I think this makes a hell of a lot of sense. If you're going to bring back Benotto, who, let's face it, was very good when it came to making Ferrari engines back in the day, you're going to want to put him back in the field that was his. And I know when he was bumped up to sort of team leader and team manager, a lot of people said he was going to be out of his comfort zone. And sure enough, he was. Even as CTO, he seemed a little sort of pushed beyond his remit, designing sort of the entire car or overseeing the construction of the entire car. It didn't fall within his par view. It wasn't something that fell within his wheelhouse, his skill set. There was something that just wasn't clicking. But when he was doing just engines, he was fantastic and always on the ball. Equally, Audi needs someone to step in. At the moment, or the last I heard from Audi, was that they had a single-cylinder development prototype in the works. Bear in mind that Ford and Red Bull have just signed off on a fully functioning prototype engine, like full-ball V6, with all the mod cons lashed onto it. It looks like Ferrari, oh, Audi are behind. and could really do with someone to come along, G up the project, and give them... A bit of a guiding hand. We're sticking with 1.6 V6s, it seems to be, or at least something that's a similar size package with the new 2026 regulations. So obviously Binotto knows how to build those or has at least seen them in practice since we reached the turbo hybrid era. So this isn't going to be something he's unfamiliar with when he comes to Audi equally. And yeah, it, it, it sounds like a smart enough move and equally taking a bit of pressure off his shoulders as team principal gives him that scope to revel in sort of engine engineering. Wasn't he as well when he was team principal chief 
technical officer at the same time at Ferrari. So perhaps he just had too much on his hands to actually really do a good enough job. There were a few times, I believe, where his roles did overlap. And I want to hazard a guess that possibly you can see there being a downturn in Ferrari's performance when they stretched personnel too thin or pushed them beyond their standard sort of of archetype and I think that's where things started to unravel a bit for Ferrari and left them in what's been quite a long spiral for them to dig themselves out of and yeah I think you've got to look at this is possibly me thinking off the top of my head but if you think about how long it took Ferrari to start digging themselves out of the hole that they fell into add that onto Mercedes woes while they say they've got a great chassis and a great aerodynamic setup moving forwards for next year that's a two-year turnaround. That's a long old time. And you've got to bear in mind how long McLaren have been in the doldrums or how long Williams have been in the doldrums. In F1, it's not like a three-year cycle that you can just pull yourself out of. You're in and you're in for a long old time until you make some big changes. And yeah, this is this is going to be an interesting sort of toe in the water, the canary in the mineshaft, if you will, to see whether or not Benotto still got it and equally long run for other teams, how quickly things can be turned around if you have had a slump. I have to agree. I think it is a smart move. Like you say, Jesse, when he was at Ferrari as an engineer, he excelled there. I think moving into the team principal position, it's Ferrari, like the history of that team in Formula One or in motorsport in general, it comes with a lot of pressure. And certainly with how they've performed over the past few years, it hasn't been championship winning as of late. As we know, Mercedes were dominant throughout the hybrid era. And 2022 wasn't great for Ferrari. So that team, they're known for making necessary decisions when they need to, getting rid of team principles when it is necessary. And they did that with Bonotto. But moving to Audi, I think... It is a smart move. We could see him get back to what he used to be, how he used to be, being the engineer at Audi. And it could really help them in their F1 entry. And I'm excited to see what Audi can bring to the grid, to Formula 1, when they join, especially with minds like Bonotto as part of their team. It's it's an interesting development. We'll see if it's the right step forward for them as they sort of move into partner with Sauber and uh, create a newly engineered team for the future. But speaking of newly engineered things for the future, this is more of an entirely new race series for the future. And Formula G, it's rather snuck up on us. It sort of just was announced one day by Nick Heidfeld and... Um, that was that. It was a new series that's just completely apparated and is apparently going to launch in 2024. And this isn't to be confused with the Jim Carner series, Formula G. This Formula G is being led, as I've said, by Nick Heidfeld in a bid to provide a green accessible feeder series. Details are a little scant at the moment. I've done some digging around on their website and I need to try and get in touch with their press team to try and find out a bit more. There's no word on chassis providers, where the powertrains are coming up from, or anything along those lines. But what we do know is how they've self-described, which is as the first global all-electric dual-power open-wheel motorsport series. The dual-power refers to the cars having two settable power settings. So in the same way that we know with the F1 cars, you can essentially tweak them to like a party mode. What they've done is adapt that concept and apply it to electric cars, where you can simply have two power outputs from one setup. And this means that you end up with FG1, which will see the cars crack 180 miles an hour at the top end. No word on the kilowatt hours or the wattage or the sort of torque that that provides. And FG2, which will crest at about 150 miles an hour is what they've released so far. Again, no really detailed stats on the electrical performance from this, just simply the big glossy top speed numbers that the cars will achieve. This essentially means that they can run two tiers of feeder series, as it were, as the cars get progressively faster across a weekend. 
The inaugural series, starting in late 2024, will feature independent championships in four regions, each with 10 team franchises, each of those again fielding two cars, with a further four drivers per team, per so two per racing class. The racing regions are the Americas, the Latin Americas, Europe and Africa, Southwest Asia, and there is an East Asia leg coming in 2025. So it's looking to be sort of essentially four championships run consecutively back to back around the world, likely with different drivers per regional championship, with four drivers per team, with junior drivers obviously running the less powerful car, more experienced drivers running the more powerful car. There's a lot going into this and a lot that it's pulling into, but it equally means that it is abundantly accessible. And the fact they've put this emphasis on Europe and Africa suggests that we might see some real diversity, which is important in motorsport, actually making a step up through a genuine feeder series if this is pulled off. The series, alongside offering physical and mental training for drivers, also offers educational programs and media marketing and promotional training, giving young and up-and-coming drivers a real agency over their profile and progress. This is something which we haven't really seen too much of a sort of negative spin on with drivers coming up through F3, F2, and into F1. Drivers seem to have a pretty good handle on their personal presence online and again against the media, but it's not something that people are ever taught. You just sort of get used to talking to the media and get used to doing interviews. So actually offering this as a sort of constructive part of your racing career does look like a very well thought out step. The training aspect goes further still. It offers roles to junior and entrant level mechanics, engineers, and the myriad of other roles that form a race team. So it's truly a feeder series that goes beyond simply feeding in drivers to a series. It goes and looks at engineers and the mechanics and obviously you've got race engineers you've got the people that put together your strategies your team leaders and everything that creates the standard team dynamic we see in motorsports and obviously it's all electric so there is a large element of environmental sort of greenism factored into this the real question is do we think there's a scope for an electric feeder series extreme e and formula e have some brilliant drivers but where is their next generation coming from it is an intriguing idea and if it can do half of what it says, then I'll already be impressed because it seems to be, I don't know, call me sceptical because I, I am being sceptical, let's face it here, but it just seems like it's, if it can pull it all off, then it's great. And on paper, it looks excellent, but it's one thing saying you're going to do all of this stuff and it's another actually pulling it off. And like you say, there's a lot of details that are still very sparse for something that until it was on here, you could have easily missed it and just not even noticed the announcement at the time. It didn't seem very, you know, you think you'd make more of a big deal out of it than just, I'm going to do this thing. You'd have a bit more, maybe I'm just pro programmed by F1 to expect big flashy things now for any old bit of news, but it just kind of, like you say, came out of nowhere and could have easily flown under the radar. So I want to take it all with a pinch of salt for now because it seems good. But until it's actually physically there, I don't know if I believe it's going to happen. Yeah. And I mean, as well, you have more uh, recently anyway, drivers have been making the move from Formula 2 to Formula E. So that feeder series is always already kind of feeding itself into Formula E. I think it does sound good on surface level. I think... It depends how accessible it actually is. Is this a feeder series that you're going to need a lot of money for, you know, like F2 and F3, or is it going to be more accessible for a wider amount of people? I think it's great that we'll be covering the majority of the world, but I also feel like if you're going to have races in like four, almost four different series, 
I feel like then you need a step in between Formula G and then like the series if sort of like Formula E or Extreme E. So you have Formula G almost picking up that talent and then those that have that talent come together and race against each other and then they move into that whichever racing series. So you kind of, you've got more gist of what the talent is really like. I think the idea with the lower power setup means that you can have those sort of really early feeds into it. But again, the whole question around funding and how much it's going to cost drivers as entry, it's sparse and it's unknown. Short of actually trying to apply as a driver, I couldn't find any details. And even then, I sort of ran out of time my working week, unfortunately, to fake apply as a driver to this potentially interesting series to try and get some more details. But it starts next year. And there's been so little about it. We don't even know what circuits it's racing on yet. And I haven't seen any releases from the likes of Silverstone, Cota, Spielberg, anywhere saying that they're going to be hosting rounds of this. So it's going to be interesting when we see how this one pans out. But it's not the only feeder series news that's really come out this week. Yeah, there's more feeder series news because Ritomo Miata will be joining the ELMS and Formula 2 categories next year so he took the title in super formula this year and the toyota back driver has been offered the chance to run in both series which is pretty neat and in terms of preparation and possible graduation into formula one or WEC, that's pretty good and he's likely going to be a replacement kobayashi when he moves on to being uh, the squad's team principal there next year so good time to be him really you kind of get the best of both worlds you're not limited on options ELMS is a great category. There's lots that you can learn there. And like we always say, if you've got a bit of experience in more than one discipline of motorsport, then it can really benefit you in another because you're never quite sure what you're going to be able to learn that you can apply to one and vice versa. So be interesting to see how all of that goes. And it's just, yeah, it's a driver I'm actually looking forward to seeing this year. And it makes sense to to go into both of these for me. So two thumbs up. It's interesting because usually we see F2 drivers, or certainly of late we've seen F2 drivers go and do super formula. It's interesting we're now seeing that go the other way around and potentially it's sort of really dragging the series into the spotlight as a potential source for new drivers for teams and to be a sort of a, yet another sort of rung on that feeder series ladder as we like to refer to it. But when it comes to moving over to hypercars and the World Endurance Championship, I think that's where the big pathway is going to be for Miata. I think he's he's proven to be an absolutely phenomenal racer in single seaters. And if he gets a chance to sort of work his way towards um, WEC through the ELMS route, that is going to be potentially fantastic. Because Kobayashi is, I don't want to be rude, but he's not the youngest driver in that um, Gazoo racing outfit. So there's every chance that they're going to be looking for the next rack of drivers to move into those seats. And... Well, I mean, Kobayashi is a, a suitable fit to move up to sort of be a, a team principal, a team leader there, because he's seen the outfit grow and change over the years. He's taken Toyota to victories when they've been the only team running in the hypercar class, admittedly, but he knows a lot about running an endurance team. So there's every, and there is a lot of speak about him taking Miata under his wing already. So it's, it's not unlikely we're going to see that incredible pathway happen. And as a kind of mental role goes, he's a pretty good one to have for that because even though he may not have been as successful in some categories as he would have liked and as we would have liked, you do find that that still makes for a good mentor and you can be like, well, just don't do what I did, basically. And mm-hmm. do some of the bits that I did, but don't do a lot of it. And that will help you in both categories, like you say, because he's had dual experiences in endurance and single-seater stuff. So I quite like that combination. And I don't know, I'm thinking of this with my documentary head-on as well, where that could be 
in 10, 20 years' time, that could be quite fun to look back on. Yeah, I think with the right context, Kobayashi did have a relatively decent F1 career. I just think it was sort of waylaid by a few other things happening around him in the sport at the time, but he was by no means a terrible driver. So certainly someone to have sort of backing you and possibly as a little bit of a coach, it's, it's not a bad thing. But speaking of endurance racing and certainly the hyperclass, Yes, that's not the only news coming out of endurance uh, racing as three former Formula One drivers are driving or rumoured to be driving in the hypercar series of WEC. Nick DeFries will be joining this season's Manufacturers World Champions Toyota alongside Mike Conway Mike and Kemi Kobayashi replacing Jose Maria Lopez. Mick Schumacher will be joining Alpine whilst also being retained as Mercedes as their reserve driver. And off the back of his LMP2 class win this year, it is rumoured that if the third Ferrari car is run next year, Robert Kubica will be one of their drivers. It's it's a really interesting mix. There's not much to be said about Nick DeVries joining um, Toyota's outfit. He'll be in the number seven car. I think that's that's pretty cut and dry. Very much the same with Mick Schumacher, actually. He joins uh, Nicholas Lapierre, Ferdinand Habsburg, who genuinely of that Habsburg line, um, Paul Loupe-Chatin, Mathieu, I think it's Vexivier, Vex and uh, Charles Milesi. Apologies for absolutely mangling some pronunciations there. Um, and he'll be piloting what we can assume will be a brace of Alpine A424 betas uh, in the season next year. We've seen the cars out testing. They've not long had that car set up and running but we've seen it out on track and it looks to be a relatively fine thing i've seen more of it recently than i have lamborghini's car which reportedly has roman grosjean attached to it but we'll see how it pans out for the french outfit and equally like you said he is sticking on as with mercedes as their reserve driver which to a certain extent suggests they don't have the confidence in Vesti to promote him up to sort of full reserve driver role yet uh, especially given there are possibly going to be weekends where WEC and F1 clash so uh, I'm wondering who else they might be able to call on true actually they're gonna they're gonna have to have another person for those times when none of their drive reserve drivers are gonna be there or just hope for the best I guess coach Sebastian Vettel Maybe Roman Mega was for a one-off and just strategically it be Japan like he wanted it to be, and then we just make that dream happen. I think also going back to Nick DeFries, it's interesting that he's. I mean, he'll be in the number seven Toyota, which came second in the championship. Um, how he's already got quite a successful seat. We, d- I, I mean, I haven't looked it up, but I don't recall Nick DeFries having an endurance background. Um, good question. I was just having a look up to see where Fred Vesti sits in F2 at this year, and I think he stands at a chance of being in his score 35 points, which would just be enough actually to edge out Teo Porcher if he were to try and win the championship, which would give him the super license points needed to become Mercedes reserve driver. When it comes to Nick De Vries, though, has he done insurance racing before? I get the feeling he might have done, but. I they could be completely Formula wrong. To Formula E. Uh, you've done LMP2 once before, I think. So not exactly a, a great run there. Yeah, he's done it um, a couple of times over. Let's see, let's see, let's see, let's see. I, that's, I mean, they probably have done tests or something like that. But if you think that LMP2 is being... Phased out this year, yeah. Year, you think all that potential talent from LMP2 has been overlooked for someone that hasn't 
endurance race, well, much endurance racing. He took part in six of the eight rounds in the 18-19 season in LMP2. He took part in, again, six of the eight rounds in 2019 and one in Fuji, uh, the six hours of Fuji. And then 2021, obviously juggling alongside possibly a Formula E seat again in LMP2. He uh, came third at the six hours of Monza. He also has placed... Um, third of the eight hours of Bahrain in 2019-20. So he's not inexperienced behind the wheel of an LMP car, but I think the new hypercars are leagues apart from the old LMP2s, especially the old sort of Gibson V8 cars. They're a bit of a beast to try and get around a circuit and quite unrefined. So we'll see how it pans out. He's also done European Le Mans series as well. So he's he's dabbled with endurance racing and that style of vehicle. But... Um, yeah, it's a it's an interesting move from Toyota, but I think it might play out for them. Realise he had that much. Mm. But I think for me, it's interesting that, or it's good to see, like you say, you've just read out his background there, and he does have some endurance. But it's good to see that being removed from AlphaTauri, shall we say, hasn't knocked his confidence, and he is back racing because for me, he left F one earlier than he should have. I think. They should have given him until the summer break, like they said they would have, not giving him the axe beforehand. But it'll be interesting to see how he does perform with Toyota in that number seven car as well. And with Mick, I'm glad he's still with Mercedes and that he'll get time in a race seat in the hypercar team next year. He will be racing again. But it is a very good point about... Mercedes reserve because they have Vesti but they haven't announced him yet and then they do have Kimi Antonelli but he's just making the jump to Formula 2 missing out Formula 3 so he is still quite a few years off a reserve driver seat I think so it is interesting who they will choose yeah bear in mind though that Mick Schumacher or the Schumacher name certainly in endurance racing in its top flight is no new thing of course uh, if you wind back the clock to want to say the early 90s we had Michael Schumacher racing for Mercedes in their um, absolute monsters of cars I can't remember what they were even called I think they're like the C12 weren't they yeah in the group C classes so it's it's all changed and it's all interesting stuff with some fantastic historical pieces tied in. But we'll loop back to some feeder series stuff and this time with Red Bull and actually two drivers who are are tied with or, or rather no longer tied with Red Bull. First up is Jack Crawford, um, Jackie Moon, who has parted ways with Red Bull. And um, a quote I got from him was, we wanted to make uh, key decisions and we let them know mid-year. And after that, they didn't pick up my fifth and final year on the contract. So at least we are now in control of what happens next. So it seems very much like a driver-driven thing. He was looking at alternative options and um, wanted to make some moves of his own, which begs the question, Jack Crawford, American driver, do we think we're going to see him make a move towards IndyCar, perhaps moving away from the Formula One tree? We've seen it before. Wouldn't be surprised if we see it again. And... I'm kind of there for it because he's done all right in F2 and the drivers that kind of did all right in F2 did then go to IndyCar and are doing pretty decently there so far. So I think it would be a good move. Yeah, it's it kind of my very, it's a short answer, but it's just, I like the idea. So yes. 
Yeah, conceptually, it makes a lot of sense. However, when it comes to Red Bull Junior drivers making moves to elsewhere, there is the matter of Zane Maloney, who has signed with Andretti Formula E as their reserve and development driver for 2024. This tracks with the rumours that he and Enzo Fittipaldi are being dropped from the Red Bull Academy at the end of this year. It sort of seems to flip and flop from week to week as to whether they have been dropped or whether it's still very much a rumour, but there's a huge shake-up going around at sort of the Red Bull Junior paddock as to what's actually happening but with more formula two drivers getting deals with formula e is this because of that uncertainty of ever actually getting an f1 seat the grid is pretty much set for a few years now with drivers on long retention contracts uh, are zane maloney and jack crawford actually making smart moves at going somewhere else and sort of cutting their losses in short yes Obviously, with Maloney, it comes after he tested with the team in Berlin, Rome and Valencia so, throughout the year. So Andretti have obviously seen something they like in him. And, you know, if he has been... Is he definitely dropped from Red Bull or is it rumoured? It's From what I've read, every place seems to sort of have it differently as to whether he and Enzo have been dropped or haven't been dropped. And the most recent thing I read said they hadn't been dropped, but they are on the chopping block, so to speak. So we'll wait and see what happens. Yeah, he's, I mean, he's probably then broadening his horizons probably now for 2025 in case he doesn't have that opportunity to reach Formula One. He can, he's now sort of embedded in the Andretti family in Formula Two. And Andretti also that, that Andretti family for Formula yeah. One, maybe depending on where that goes. So, he might be doing quite a smart thing there. Of like, I'll be with Formula E, you can put me there for as long as you want, but also just don't forget about me when you get into Formula One and you need that younger driver if you want to have that paired with an experienced driver or IndyCar or Extreme E. Yeah, he's, he's played a very open Andretti is there. pretty good like that, they have a bit of everything. Yeah, and I think. Like you said, like this year, we've seen Hauger, he's departed from the Red Bull Junior Academy. Daruvula has parted from them in the past. And Daruvula has now said he posted on his social media that this year will be his last in Formula 2 because he is going to go and focus on Formula E. So we do see a lot of F2 drivers moving on to Formula E or IndyCar like Marcus Armstrong from last year. And they are doing well. So... For Crawford, I think IndyCar is definitely the natural next step. Like you said, Jesse, the F1 grid, it is locked in at the moment. It's only Sargent that needs confirming for 2024. So the spaces are limited and it is difficult to get into. But if they can get continue racing, get experience in other series like Formula E or IndyCar, it will be good for them in the end. And Maloney with Andretti, like you say, Andretti have a bit in lots of different championships and they are making a bid for F1. So if they do manage to get approved by F1 and FOM, we could see Maloney on the grid in the future. Mm. I mean, when it comes to IndyCar, you've only got to look at the likes of, like you said, um, Callum Eilat as well as another great example of drivers that have sort of made the move from Formula 2 into IndyCar and gone, you know what, it's a hell of a lot of fun. The cars are a lot more dynamic to wheel around and they don't seem to be doing too badly sort of outside of the racing with it either life seems to be pretty cushy if you're living out in nashville on an indycar driver's paycheck so can't blame them for making that move but when it comes to junior drivers making moves paul aaron will be joining trident for the final round of the f2 championship this weekend he'll be replacing personal favorite clement novelak in abu dhabi um, this hints at him stepping up to the f2 next season which is fair after a decent year in formula three he's come third overall and was locked in a tight season-long battle with o'sullivan marty and Pinto. equally 
is this the end of the road for Clem? Will he have to turn to podcasting full time now? I don't think he's released an official statement on it just yet, but we'll see what time tells for everyone's favorite foodie and wine connoisseur who just so happens to have a podcast, maybe tangentially related to um, racing. And Colapinto, who we've mentioned before, actually, is taking over from Jayhan Daruvula for the weekend and will be taking over from into 2024. To that point, it had only really been announced that he was um, running in Abu Dhabi and they didn't even announce who for yet. I think they were waiting to make make sure that Yehan was sort of set up and ready to go in Formula E and he's he's made his start over there in the electric series so I think it's it's nice they've at least given him time to have his transition have his moment in the sun and then sort of announce Colapinto afterwards they've not sort of trodden on toes there which is nice to see in the often cut and thrust world of Formula 2. Both driver announcements show again why Formula 2 in Abu Dhabi is always doubly exciting because normally you have a title battle that's coming down to the end of the year most of the time, okay, some some obvious examples of, of not having that, but again, you're going to see that happening. And then Paul Aaron and Colin like you say, we've had some interesting stuff from them this year already. So seeing them at least get that first chance in an F2 car ahead of next year, whilst there's a massive gap between now and the start of next year, you always like to see that and how they're going to get along there. Not very surprised that Novelex got on the boot for someone who's probably going to do better than him even in the car that is not necessarily the best one on the grid. But um, if we put it purely on race pace and performance, maybe he should focus on not racing. Mm. If he does want someone to come and guest on his podcast in a nice restaurant, my calendar's wide open if you're listening, Clem. Um, but we've mentioned, obviously, the young drivers that are heading over to Abu Dhabi, and it is new drivers in FP1 galore this weekend. Yeah, you kind of just drowning in them really everywhere you look there's something going on I mean Jake Dennis randomly somewhat randomly has managed to get a drive for Red Bull so is is Isaac Yeah, I know but it just seemed like you're so used to seeing F2 drivers getting that kind of seat time that Jake Dennis is national like you're happy but you're like that was a it seemed just slightly left field um, so I they're both going to be driving for Red Bull go on anyway I think it's because he's their sim development driver so at some point they need to see how well the sim correlates to the car yeah well, it makes sense it's just i think the initial seeing the name announced for it like hang on a minute what's going yeah, on here but bear in um, mind that alonso did the young driver test last year like this yes but he's very price. useful he is he makes jack two is going to be yeah. driving for alpine anyway felipe drogovic is going to be there for Aston martin zach o'sullivan for williams patro ward back in mclaren Fred Vesti, as mentioned is going to be back in mercedes maybe then we'll get to see what they do with him for next year Table chair for Alfa Romeo and then Oli Behrman for Haas, which he'll be doing double duty as he's also going to be racing in F2. Pietro Fittipaldi will also be running the 2024 prototype tyre for the team in the postseason test, but he isn't running FP1, but it's just worth mentioning whilst we're there. So, with all of those names listed, and some new, some not so new, which driver are you all looking forward to seeing most in FP1? Admittedly, I'm not sure what we're going to be expecting from them. It's kind of you're expecting them on page two of the timing sheets realistically, but at the same time, you never know. And it's just a bit of fun with FP1. This random stuff can happen. I'm not sure how much some of the teams will necessarily mind either. So for me, it's either going to be Hajar or Behrman. Bear in mind that Behrman absolutely trounced a lot of the field in Mexico when he was out in that Haas and it was a phenomenal mm. drive. And Hajar didn't have too bad a time of things. I think he was out in an Alpha Tauri in Mexico. So it's interesting. He's now got the step up to the big boy car. And the approach he had for Mexico was 
hell we'll see what happens and gave it his all if he does that with the Red Bull kind of the approach you have to take if when you're given that opportunity though oh yeah and equally when you're quite a left field choice for it but I think if he puts that in in the Red Bull which is quite a very competitive car and a car that really seems to benefit from being taken by the scruff of the neck and just sort of given a damn good thrashing he might surprise a lot of people behind the wheel of that car and I can't see that being a bad thing for his career. So they're the two I'm going to keep an eye on. I think hypercritically, Dragovic, who reportedly from some insiders at Aston Martin was not quicker than Jess Hawkins in that mid-season test, um, will also be one to keep an eye on and see how he compares to the rest of the team by uh, by the rest of their standards. But yeah, given given the data that... Well, Jack Dewan does pretty well because he could do with that confidence boost. I'd just be intrigued to see what Alpine are going to do with their line because it seems locked in but at the same time that could all change and I really want to see Jack doing an F1 and I don't really mind who that comes at the at the cluster yeah we'll see how that goes I agree with you with Ollie Behrman just because he was so damn good out in Mexico but I will I will go back to Jake Dennis I mean he's been with that he's been with Red Bull since I think 2018 I think so it'd be nice to see him actually get to drive the car for once and he's already got enough super license points to be in f1 so if he can impress a few people then he can use this opportunity to try and get himself embedded further into formula one if that's what he wants i'm excited to see what he can do and i would like to see more crossovers between not so much of like formula of like drivers moving to formula e but more like kind of nick de Vries did but formula e going to drivers going to formula one and not just using i guess the experiences of nick de Vries to not bring actual more formula e drivers in i think they kind of need a, a chance more of a chance yeah there's a wealth of talent in the electric series and i think that de Vries's start is not possibly going to be the greatest as an example but dennis i think might prove that wrong if he does get the shot i'm hoping with his time on the sim that he'll be used to the. <laughs> we'll wait and see. Yeah, braking's quite different in a Formula E car to a Formula One car. So I think it's like a, it's a good spread of different drivers. They all have different experiences throughout their racing career. And like Zach O'Sullivan, he's Formula Three this year. He's moving up to F two next year, and now he's doing an FP one session this coming weekend. It, it's a big jump for him. I'm excited to see what. He can do how he'll fare. Obviously, like you guys say, Behrman, he did great when he was in it in Mexico. He's had a fantastic season in F2 so far this weekend. Not this week, with this year with some incredible performances. But for me, my eyes will be on Porsche and Vesti because they're in that tight title battle and it will all come down to this weekend. Having extra practice on the track, albeit being an F1 car, not an F2 car, I'm just interested in how they get that more experience conveying it into their performances in the sprint and feature race over the weekend to become champion but yeah i feel like fp1 will definitely be one to watch this weekend i think we also say as well you know that f1 there aren't many seats anymore but i'm thinking actually 2025 you i think you could see a lot of change you know say whatever happens in red bull and alpha tauri there could be a, at least one seat there maybe even two in alpha tauri williams depending on how logan sargent does or if alex alban somehow gets a seat somewhere else there's seats available there Haas, how happy are they going to be with kevin magnuson and nico holkenberg next year 
I actually think there could be a lot of movement in 2025. Yeah, you only need one driver to, to kind of start off the domino effect there, really, don't you? We saw that with, was it Vettel or Alonso, which one of them started that one, and it just kind of snowballed from there. So, yeah, 25, hopefully. It'd be nice to get some changes just to see, even if it's a bit of merry-go-round with the same drivers on the grid into different teams, just to see who have now with a bit of fresh blood, because they keep being lauded as the 20 best drivers in the world, you like, yeah, but we want to see other people in that and maybe get a chance to establish themselves as that as well. So it's it would be nice to get some fresh blood in there and we're definitely not get that next year. We'll see how it comes together. But with all of that news out of the way, we'll start looking ahead to the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix and we'll start as usual with our weather forecast and looking at things as they stand at the moment. Thursday is a relatively nice 29 degrees Celsius through the day. So track inspections and walks will be fairly decent to sort of get hold of and get a good idea of what the track is laying out for you. Moving into Friday, it's 29 degrees through the day, dropping to a low of 23 overnight. So not too cold and I don't think we're going to see the problems that we saw in Las Vegas striking here. Saturday, 28 degrees through the day and 21 overnight. So again, another relatively nice day, but we're seeing the humidity pick up. Not that's really going to cause too much of a problem. About 25% humidity, relatively low chance of rain. And then into Sunday, 30 degrees. It's a lot warmer in the day with a 21 degrees low overnight or sort of into the evening. So how long that heat hangs around is going to be crucial to getting tyres into the window and crucially not overcooking them which means that when it comes to the battle forecast and which on-track battles we should look out for, it's a very different setup to how we had things in Las Vegas. And I'm doing this completely off the cuff because I didn't get a chance to write them while I was in the office today. But crucially, we're looking at a lot more corners around this circuit that are able to be strung together and a lot more medium speed ones, which very much favours the McLaren more so than it has done in the previous races. So we could see Norris and Piastri back on form to a certain extent. This is going to hinder Ferrari a little bit. We're back into the warmer conditions, and I think that's also going to play out badly for the likes of Haas, Alfa Romeo, and possibly Williams, the other teams that really struggle when it comes to moderating tyre temperatures. Mercedes could come back to the fore here because they won't be looking to try and source or struggling to generate tyre heat, and they can manage their tyres well, possibly favouring a one-stop strategy. Although, if the racing action is intense, a two-stop might become quite favourable. Red Bull are likely to sort of run away with things at the lead of the circuit, and as for the likes of Alpha Tauri and Alpine, where they slot into the rest of that mix, is anyone's game. Aston Martin will be looking to finish the season on a high though and we're back to the sort of circuit that very much seems to favour their chassis but given the development wall that's gone on through the year it's tricky to tell. So with that in mind we'll take a look at some predictions and as it stands or as it's what's written in front of me it's currently two to one Max Verstappen against Charles Leclerc. Ellie May you have yet to announce yours. Yeah I just I haven't decided what so or what I'm gonna put so I'm just gonna go with the flow. I'm gonna say Leclerc. Ooh. Siding with me on the Leclerc front, I don't think there's any real need to ask why people have picked Max Verstappen, but I think on a one lap he'll convert go, he'll convert either pole position into a win anyway, if it's his or Charles. So it yeah, matter. He's just as likely to turn that into a win. But when it comes to podiums, well Abby and Timo, you share your top two, and then it swaps around a bit for P3. Timo's obviously sticking with his rule of simply going from the podium for the previous race, which hasn't yet proven to be consecutive. But your P3... It's not been Abby, a disaster either, though, to be fair. True, usually. Mainly, mainly, mainly because yeah. of Max. Yeah. Mainly, mainly because of Max. But the real question is, Abby, why Sainz in P3? Because 
I think, yes, Perez could get on the podium, but comparing him to Science, his qualifying performance has not been there this season. We have seen him fail to get into Q3 a lot of the time. And for me, I feel like Ferrari are the closest team to Red Bull at the moment. And Science is the only non-Red Bull driver to have won this season. And he last week, if he didn't have any issues in Vegas, I think he could have done well and got on the podium as well and beaten Perez. So I feel like Ferrari, whilst it's not a track that will necessarily suit their car, I feel like they still stand a good chance. So Verstappen, Leclerc and Science on the podium for me. It's pretty rare to see this Ferrari optimism at this day and age, but we've got to love it when we get it. (laughs) Uh, usually that's my department, but I've completely eschewed that with my podium where I seem to have just done a lot of PCP, hit my head very hard, and then gone Norris Ock on Sonoda. Don't know why, but I think I'd quite like to see it at this point. It's because you're not winning the predictions game, so you're like, sod it, that's just I, crazy. I think this was the other thing, it was like, I might as well go big or go home, it's the final race of the season, there's no harm, it's going to happen here and I have no chance of catching either of you two. Ellie May, who have you got on your podium? Yeah, see, that's what I'm thinking in that, I don't think Timo can catch me. You definitely can't. So I'm going to go for a Leclerc win. I want to go Norris second and Piastri third. It's not that wild, but it's just what my brain is telling me. I could settle for that. I could settle for that. It could be an interesting podium. Uh, no red balls on it, which I think is crucially the interesting thing with that one. Um, fastest laps. It's a double Hamilton versus single Sainz. Uh, both Abby and I have gone for Hamilton. Timo sticking with Carlos Sainz till it happens. Very much running out of opportunities for that to happen now, Timo. Yeah, I don't think if it doesn't happen this weekend, then 2024, oh, there's going to be a long year. Yeah, still picking up with Sainz, hoping that it's going to happen, especially if Mercedes get back on form. Um, Hamilton, I'm not entirely certain what drove me to pick Hamilton. Again, I think I must have just hit my head very hard when I picked these. Abby, what caused you to choose him? It was just a gut feeling. I don't really have a reason why I chose him, but I just felt like he could get it. Fair enough. Ellie May? Think of a driver, think of a driver. I've got 20 to pick from. Sergio Perez! might happen actually so her, her her sheet to the wind idea might actually come true when it comes to wild predictions this is usually a great chance for people to go a bit against the grain with what they've picked before in which case Timo's gone for a Mercedes 1-2 Abby you've gone for Hamilton for the win and I very much echoed Ellie May's podium uh, but got a step further and said neither Red Bull in the top 10 so wouldn't that be nice I think it's an interesting bunch across across the field but Ellie May what's your world prediction going to be and so choose carefully Ellie May we could all be right here multiple drivers at some oh, point dear. in the weekend end up in the marina that feels very plain because they throw people in the marina all the time at the end hang on does, does that include the car oh fine we'll go with the car as well then Toto Wolf chucks <laughs> Mercedes into the into the yes marina Probably no, sort of Hulk rages out, picks it up above his head, and just yeets that thing into the yeah. water. It's like, be gone, foul beast, exactly. for the second year in a row, where we promised we wouldn't do that again last year. Um, he hates it so much. I'm going to keep it as multiple drivers end up in the marina, as it's going to have to be a fairly phenomenal shunt for someone to end up with a car in the marina. But, uh, oh, but that's only May's problem. I don't know why I'm giving her a chance at the point. She doesn't need it. She's way ahead of you. And a good exactly. Team. Nautical mile ahead of me, so we'll, we'll we'll change it to Toto Wolf throws the W. What is it at this point? 14. The 13, 14 into 
Toto Wolf throws the car, Current car into the water. Marina. Right. Well, I think that's a point we know you're not getting. Um, and a perfect. I love it. If he just gets, you know, like the little replicas and just chucks in little hot, hot wheels or something. Yeah. Skimming hot wheels across the <laughs> marina at Abu Dhabi. And I'm like, it counts. <sighs> yeah, fine. If it's a scale now model. I really want that to happen. Yeah, I think it'd be quite funny. <sighs> anyway, it brings us to a perfect point to wrap up this week's podcast on as it gets a bit weird. Uh, that's all we've got time for as well. And we'll be back reviewing the Abu Dhabi Grand Prix and the feeder series action from across the weekend. So make sure you've liked, subscribed and got notifications turned on to not miss anything. Timo, where can the people find you? You can find me over on Is It Fast on the Curbs, the Nitro RX podcast, Panic Strategy, and of course, Instagram. Beautiful. Abby, where can the people find you? You can find me at formulanerds.com, the Cut to the Race podcast, and on Instagram as well. Fantastic. Ellie May, if people want more of you, where can they find you? They can find me on our Instagram page where I do the graphics. I'm thinking of going, I mean, it depends how much effort i've got when i actually get around to making the graphics but i feel like i want to go wild with them now seeing it's it's the last race of the season maybe i will just have a just do it on microsoft Paint. in the in the marina just slowly sinking um or you can find me on tiktok fantastic and if you'd like more of me you can find me on instagram twitter and tiktok as at jesse on cars and writing for classic car weekly the latest issue sees me take my mg midget over one of britain's steepest roads there's some beautiful photographs to accompany it as well it's a good little adventure that one and thoroughly enjoyable to drive right and shoot in the meantime we'll see you after the abu dhabi grand prix